Our uh, quarterly sermon schedule wasn't bad enough. It's going to get worse because tonight we're not going to cover um, the whole passage that I had intended from verse 1 to 27 of Luke 19. We're just going to cover the first 10 verses. And so again, um, if you're following along, you probably got lots of changes on that thing. But again, we have a new quarter coming up and we'll, we'll get it all straightened out for next quarter. All right, Luke 19 is where we will be tonight. Jesus had been preparing his followers for the coming kingdom. He wanted them to make he wanted them to know how they could be sure that they were properly preparing for the kingdom and us as well that that we should make ourselves ready. We saw that in chapter 17. In chapter 18, he moves on from how to prepare ourselves to how to how to see what genuine faith looks like. And uh, the disciples, remember, asked the question in chapter 18, verse 26, who then can be saved? And Jesus showed them that it doesn't come through human effort or uh, seemingly blessing that comes through riches and so on. With us, salvation is impossible. It is impossible. Salvation is about depending upon God, putting everything into God's care. It's about relying upon Him completely as we have sung tonight. And we have many good and bad examples in chapter 18 about what genuine faith looks like. We have a positive example from the praying tax collector who stood far off and and beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the kind of reliance that God is looking for. We have a bad example, a negative example, from the Pharisee who was praying and really thanking God for Himself and how great He was in uh, chapter 18. We also have a positive example from children, not that they were necessarily believing because some of them were babies uh, particularly and and probably other ones were toddlers, but, but the fact that they are compelled to rely on the parents or the, the adults in their lives is a good example for us of what it should look like for us to come to God, how, how we should depend upon God. In the rich young ruler, we have a negative example in chapter 18 where he was relying on himself and his riches and was unwilling to give up those things. Uh, the disciples uh, give for us a positive example. They asked in chapter 18, you know, what, what's going to happen to us since we gave up everything? And Jesus says, don't worry, you'll be repaid Uh, in this lifetime and the next. And then, finally, the blind man, Bartimaeus, at the end of chapter 18, was a positive example for us of what genuine faith looks like. It relies upon God. That's what uh, Jesus has been teaching us, and that's what Luke has been compiling these stories all together so that we can see that. Tonight, we learn that even a wealthy outcast can be saved because nothing is impossible with God. This wealthy outcast is... Zacchaeus. So let's read the text here, verses 1 to 10. I'll read and you follow along, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, 
He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The question I think that, that we need to answer in this passage is, who is seeking whom? Who is seeking whom? In verses 1-4, to four, it appears as if Zacchaeus is seeking Christ. Uh, Zacchaeus was a hated, uh, a hated man among his own people, the Jews. He was a tax collector, but not only a tax collector. Verse 2 tells us that he was, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 1 tells us that he was a chief tax collector. And so he was a wealthy man and he earned his money uh, through collecting taxes, through the, the, um, uh, the difficulties or really extorting some of this money, drawing it from these people, forcing them to pay this money to him. At, at the expense of, of other people, of common people, Zacchaeus was getting rich. He was a wealthy man who got his money from cheating people. He was employed by the Roman government, which made him ex- uh, exceedingly hated by the Jews because the Jews didn't like the Romans. They, they lived with them. They dealt with it that, that the Romans were over them, but they didn't like them. And so that a Jew, the fact that you would have a Jew that would work for the Romans was not a good thing. And so we have a wealthy man here. And wealth is not the best ingredient for salvation because in chapter 18 verse 24 Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God in fact it's impossible for him it's more possible for a rich man uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God in other words it is impossible for a rich man to, to be saved but despite his position and value he wanted to see Jesus he's seeking out Jesus verses 3 and 4 He's like the blind man in chapter 18 who wanted to see Jesus. He wanted Jesus to come to him. But the problem for Zacchaeus, not that he was blind, it was that he was too short. And so with this huge mob of people who formed to follow Jesus and just get a glimpse of him or maybe touch his cloak or whatever the case, uh, Zacchaeus couldn't see. And so he climbed a sycamore tree, as we know from from our early earliest age, if you were in church at a young age. The sycamore tree is a tree that grows to 30 or 40 feet and it's a a tall tree, but it has low-hanging branches, which makes it great for climbing, especially for uh, someone as short in stature as Zacchaeus. It turns out that Zacchaeus comes to faith in Christ and shows the fruit of repentance. Uh, That's what verse 8 is about. He says, Behold, half of my possessions I give to the poor. He's not saying, Jesus, I want to show you that I'm, I'm going to earn my salvation from you. I'll show you that, that I'm worthy of this salvation. That's not the point. It, it is, he has already been saved, and we'll see that that takes place later. So if we ask the question, who is seeking whom? It sounds like, from what we've just looked at, that Zacchaeus is seeking Christ. And I think there is some truth to that. But what we learn in verses 5 to 10 is that Christ is the one who's seeking Zacchaeus. 
It's Christ who's actually pursuing Zacchaeus. Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Notice that phrase there, I must stay. He's not asking, he's not uh, inviting himself over. He's saying, this is a divine necessity. I am on a mission with a purpose to bring salvation to your home. I am on a mission to save you from your sins. And so Zacchaeus gladly welcomes him into his home, verses 6 and 7. And uh, we might think that, that when Jesus comes and invites himself over to Zacchaeus' home, we might think that Zacchaeus is already saved, but it seems to me, based on the, this verse 9, that Jesus brings salvation to his home. Notice what it says there today, salvation has come to this house. That it's not that Zacchaeus was already saved and now he's following up on a disciple of his and wants to make sure that he's moving in the right direction. Instead, I think Jesus saves him at his home. He draws him to himself. Verse 8, Zacchaeus shows the fruit of repentance. After having been saved, Zacchaeus shows the fruit of repentance. Notice what he's willing to give up after having been saved. Verse 8, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say half of my salary. Half of my income from this next year I'm going to give to the poor. No, half of everything that I own, my net worth. Okay, again, a rich man, this was not an insignificant thing. Because if he had a year where he made a certain amount of money, half of that would be significant. But to say, of all the things that I have and own, I'm going to take half of them and give to the poor. And in addition to that, he says in verse 8, I'm going to pay back all the people that I've defrauded. Again, shows how he got his wealth from defrauding people and pay them back four times as much. Now again, I don't think Zacchaeus is earning his salvation here. He's already saved at this point at his home, but he is promising to pay those whom he has defrauded. Now the verbal phrase here in verse 8, I am or I will give there in verse 8, and then at the end of the verse, I have, def- uh, I will give back. So, I will give and I will give back. If you look in the margin of your Bible, the other alternative is I am giving. It's a, it's a present tense verb in the Greek. And what that tells us is that it's something that he's, it sounds like it's something he's already doing. Uh, but you have to recognize that a present tense verb can also be used to talk about a future event. For example, I could say, I will go to the store tomorrow. That's a future tense verbal phrase. I will go to the store tomorrow. And what I mean is, tomorrow I'll be at the store. Okay? Or I could say, completely appropriate in English and in Greek, I am going to the store tomorrow. And we would say that's a present tense verbal phrase. I am going, that's present, but I'm speaking about it in terms of future Okay, that, that I'm, it's, it's what's known as a futuristic present. And I think that's what's going on here because it's not that, that Zacchaeus is saying, Jesus, listen, this is all the things that I have been doing that I currently am doing. Now that you brought salvation to my house, that's a good thing. No, it's, it is, this is what I will do. You have brought salvation to my house and that's why I think the New American Standard translates it properly. I will give. That's the idea. It would be appropriate to translate it, I am giving, but we don't get the futuristic sense 
of it. And there, there are several reasons why I think it's a futuristic present here in verse 8. And this will become important as I, I uh, kind of wrap this whole thing up and show you the point of this text. Um, if these phrases are not future, then Zacchaeus is boasting. If these phrases are not future, I will give to the poor, I will give back. If, if he hasn't been saved up until this point, if he, or, or I should say, if he has been doing these things all the way up to this point, and then salvation comes, and what that says is he's boasting. He's like the Pharisee who prayed in chapter 18, verses 11 and 12, and says, look at all the things that I do. I fast twice a week and so on. That's boasting. If these phrases are not future, then why did Christ say in verse 9, today salvation has come to your house? And then thirdly, third reason I think this is a futuristic present is because Luke records in the context, Luke is recording uh, about stories about people who are being confronted with salvation. This is not someone who's been a believer for a long time and now he's telling Jesus what he's doing. It's not someone who, who um, has been doing these works in order to earn salvation, these stories that Luke has been recording, that he's been putting in here in chapter 18 and chapter 19 have to do with uh, someone being confronted with their salvation, which is what's happening here. Fourthly, the summary of Christ's work and life is recorded immediately following this episode. In verse 10 it reads, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, showing that Christ is bringing salvation to the house of Zacchaeus and the response of that, the, the follow-up to that is I'm going to give up half of my possessions and I'm going to pay back what I've defrauded times four. And then finally, if, if these phrases are not future, then why would the crowds be hostile against Him? Look at verse 7. After Jesus comes to His house and Zacchaeus receives Him gladly, verse 7 reads, when they, the crowd, saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. How did they see Zacchaeus? They knew that he was not a changed man at that point. That he was a sinner. He needed transformation. Now, this is important for two reasons. The first reason is that generosity is the response of a genuine believer, not the means to salvation. That generosity is our response to salvation, not the means of salvation. Do you understand the difference? Zacchaeus did what the rich young ruler would not do. He, Zacchaeus, was willing to sell his possessions in order to give it to the poor and to repay those he had defrauded. He, he recognized that there is a cost to salvation. Not in that we purchase it or we earn it, but that we need to count the cost of what it means to follow Christ. And that no person, the entire world, all of history can serve two masters. They can't serve both God and money. Zacchaeus recognized that. He was willing to count the cost. And he saw that the riches of a relationship with Christ and an eternal home was worth by far much more than the amount that he had in the possessions that he owned. You see, Zacchaeus responded to what Christ had already done. He wasn't working toward His salvation. So, it's important because generosity is the response of salvation, not the means. And then secondly, because Christ is the initiator of all salvation. Christ is the initiator of all salvation. And this is what we're going to see 
in verses 9 and 10. And so when we ask this question, who is seeking whom? Who is pursuing whom in this event that's recorded for us of, a, of the salvation of Zacchaeus? Who is seeking whom? whom? Verses 1-4, to four, it looks like Zacchaeus is the one that's doing all the work. He's the one that's looking out for Jesus. He's making it a path so that he can see Him. And so we could say salvation is initiated by Zacchaeus. But actually, when, when Christ interprets what's going on in verses 9 and 10, what we learn is that Christ is the one who's pursuing Zacchaeus. Christ is the initiator of salvation. The summary of this whole event is given for us in verses 9 and 10. Notice what he does here. He turns to Zacchaeus, and we know that because of the first part of verse 9, and Jesus said to him, so now you picture Jesus talking to Zacchaeus. Notice what he says to him. Today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this, your house. But now notice the difference or the change in pronouns at the second part of verse 9 because now he turns to the crowd and he says this, because he too is the son of Abraham. Jesus is using this as an opportunity to teach the crowd. He says, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. And then he turns to the crowd and says, because he too is the son of Abraham. Now, he's not talking about a physical descendant of Abraham, although I believe Zacchaeus was a Jew, but rather a spiritual descendant. Galatians 3.7 says that those who are of faith, you and me, are the true sons of Abraham. We are the true children of Abraham. That's the kind of, of fam, familial relationship that God demands in order for us to be a part of His family. We need to be of a, a child of Abraham in that way. That is, with regard to faith. So, for the way that Christ explains the situation, He's saying to Zacchaeus and to the crowd, Listen, this man is a man of faith. He has received salvation today and, and he is um, the person that God comes to. Notice the final statement in verse 10. And this is most telling about who is pursuing whom. Verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've mentioned before that this statement serves as the summary statement for the entire Gospel of Luke. I think Luke outlines his Gospel in this way. First, the Son of Man came. Chapters 1-4 through four, talks about his childhood, uh, his birth, his childhood, his preparation for ministry. The Son of Man came. He came from heaven to the earth. He condescended to us. He was incarnated. God in human flesh. The Son of Man came. The second part of that statement, the Son of Man came to seek the lost. He came to seek the lost. Chapters 5 through the first part of chapter 19. That Jesus came to reveal Himself to the people of Galilee on His way to Jerusalem. That Jesus was the one who was seeking out the lost. Healing them from their diseases. Healing them from their spiritual, their greatest problem, their spiritual needs. The Son of Man came chapters 1-4. to The Son of Man came to seek the lost. Chapters 5 to the first part of chapter 19. And then, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 19 to the end of the Gospel, the Son of Man came to save the lost. And what are those chapters about? It's about Christ arriving in Jerusalem, teaching in the temple, dying and rising from the dead, and then being exalted. 
Okay, it's about Christ saving. The Son of Man came to the earth to seek out people for His namesake and to save them. That's what Christ came to do. And so we think about that in terms of the whole book and we say, yes, that's what Christ came to do. That's what He came to do for me. He came to seek and to save me. But Christ actually says this in the context of, of, of the salvation of Zacchaeus. It's a summary of what happened to him. Zacchaeus is an example of a person that Jesus came to seek and to save. And for Zacchaeus, it felt like he was the one who was seeking Jesus, right? He's the one who made all the effort to get up in the tree and to seek Him out. He spotted Christ among the crowd. He was the one who welcomed Him into His home. He was the one who gave up His possessions. And so it felt a lot like to Zacchaeus that he was seeking Him. He was seeking Jesus. But I think the passage, the evidence of the passage points to the fact that Jesus was actually seeking Zacchaeus. Look at verse 5 again. When Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. If Zacchaeus were not in a tree, would Jesus have said that? We can't say for sure, but I would say yes. That Jesus said, I must stay at your house today. I've come to seek you and to bring salvation to your home. And then verse 10, I think, just kind of drives the point home most clearly that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus. Notice what it does not say in verse 10. The Son of Man came to be sought by the lost. That's how we could look at this whole situation. You know, Jesus put Himself in a position where He could be sought by other people, like Zacchaeus. In a position where Zacchaeus could work his way to a position where he could see Jesus, but Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. I'm the one who's seeking you. Friends, the same thing is true about your salvation and mine. I'm sure that you, like I, could describe your salvation like a journey. Right? You remember the time when you were not interested in the things of God. When you were opposed to God. But then something happened. You began searching. Something in your life changed. And you started searching after God. Maybe you were talking with someone who knew Christ and you wanted to know more. Maybe you were reading the Bible and you wanted answers to some questions. Maybe you were wrestling in your head for years with some theological issues until one day... You finally submitted to the Gospel and you repented and believed and you were saved. And, and when you looked back on that, you thought, I'm so glad that I started on my journey of salvation to pursue Christ. I'm so glad that I sought out Christ. And while I don't, I don't want to dismiss your searching for Christ, I think that is the case. I mean, Zacchaeus legitimately was searching for Christ. We don't want to say that didn't happen. He did. But what I'm saying is that Christ was the one who initiated it. That Christ was seeking Him long before Zacchaeus was seeking Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. I want to draw your attention to some passages that I occasionally quote, but it's helpful for us to see them ourselves because sometimes we can just get familiar with them or sometimes when I quote a passage, we... We don't think about them very carefully. So let's, let's turn to a few of these together. 
1 John 4.19. I want you to see that the Scripture teaches that Christ was actually pursuing you in salvation. And as you grow in your understanding of the Scriptures and your understanding of the Gospel, what you come to learn is that it was Christ who initiated your salvation. Look at verse 19. We love because He first loved us. Okay. For Zacchaeus, he could say, well, I was actually the one who started it. I was the one who started to love you first. I was the one who gave up something, right? You think about it. He's, he's a rich man. He's already looked down upon by the society. And for him to climb a tree was probably not the, the most pleasant thing to do. Maybe could be the object of scorn for doing something like that in that day. And yet he said, so I'm the one who's making sacrifices here. I'm the one who's really showing love. And yet what the Scriptures teach us is that the only reason that we love God or anyone else is because He first loved us. God is the initiator in salvation. Turn back to Romans chapter 3. Sometimes we, we think that, you know, salvation is mostly of God, but partially of me. You know, I'm the one that has to do some acts of faith. I'm the one who has to believe, repent and believe. And so that's my kind of contribution to the whole package of salvation. You know, He hands out the gift. I have to do the receiving. And while there is some truth to that, I want you to recognize uh, that that the Scriptures clearly teach that, that there was nothing in us that caused us to seek after God. Look at verse 10 of Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving the poison of asps is under their lips, and so on. Verse 11 reads that there is none who understand. There is none who seek for God. So while it felt like we were seeking for God, it wasn't that we did that unilaterally, as if we did it on our own, right? We were just kind of walking along, and our relationship between us and God was neutral, and we were the ones who initiated it. That's not how it happened at all because there was no goodness in us at all. Not even 1% of goodness. All of our righteousnesses were as filthy rags. We were completely dead in our sins. Friend, you may have felt like Zacchaeus prior to your salvation that you were climbing a tree in your spiritual journey and search for the Messiah and then you spotted Him and you found everything you wanted in life. But the Bible teaches that Christ was actually seeking you first. That before the foundation of the earth was laid, Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose you to be adopted as His child according to the kind intention of His choice. God had chosen to save you and He was the one who pursued you. So what we can draw from this is a very important theological principle, and that is that regeneration precedes faith and repentance. Regeneration 
precedes, comes before. We have to be regenerated before we can we can uh, do an act of faith. Now, again, our faith was definitely something that we had to engage in. No one can believe in Him. No, no one can uh, call on Him in whom they have not believed. They have to do the believing. Right? That, that if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. So there is a a qualification for you to come to Christ. But what I'm saying is that in order for you to express that faith, you can't do it until you've first been regenerated. The word regenerated means to impart spiritual life to us who are spiritually dead. As spiritually dead people, we can't exert any amount of faith. This was not a pilot-co-pilot type situation where... Christ and us were both necessary to get us to our destination of saving faith. That we needed Christ's death, He's the pilot, and He needed us, our faith. We're the co-pilot. That's not how salvation works. It's more like pilot, dead pilot. That's how it works. That even before we could put our hands on the controls of faith that led us to salvation, Christ had to inject life into us. I use the example of Lazarus often because I think it's a good one that Jesus gave Lazarus a command in the grave. A command that he could not obey in his current state. In his then state. Dead. He couldn't obey it. Until Christ first gave him life. And then he was forced to obey. He was compelled to obey. Probably a better word than forced. That's the way it is with us in our spiritual life. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You couldn't obey the call to repent and believe. That's the call for every single person on this universe. Repent and believe. We can't obey it until when? Until first God imparts life into us like He did with Lazarus. And when He does, We do nothing but say, yes, Lord, my faith is a response to what You've already done. You've woken me up. You've given life to me who's this dead pilot on the way to salvation. Turn to Philippians chapter 1 because I want you to see, because here's the next thing that you could be considering, and that is, okay, if God's the one who imparted life to me, but He still requires faith in order for me to come to Him, then... My faith is actually a work. And we have to admit that faith is necessary for salvation. We cannot deny that. That's not what I'm trying to do here tonight. A faith is necessary for salvation. No one can come to God apart from faith in Jesus Christ alone. No one can. But we might look at our faith and say, well, then faith is a work. Right? Christ gives us life, but we still have to work to get to the, the salvation. And, and yet we also hear in other contexts that, context that Jesus is enough, that His cross work is enough. But what we need to understand is that not only is the life that's imparted to us a gift from God, but also the response of faith. That too is a gift from God. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. 
Paul says to believers in Philippi, for to you it has been granted, or think given, it's a gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So what are the two things that are given in this verse? Belief and suffering. Okay, God gives both of those to us, or Christ, uh, God, God gives those to us for Christ's sake, to believe in Him and to suffer for His sake. Both of those things are gifts to us. So here's how it works. We're like Lazarus, dead in the grave, unable to do anything for ourselves, unable to hear God's voice, unable to see what God wants us to do. We are blinded by our own sin. We're enjoying our sin. We cannot please God in any way. And then God imparts life to us. And then God imparts faith to us. He gives both of those things to us. If faith were not a gift from God, then it would be a work. And if it were a work, if our faith were a work, then our salvation would be given to us as a wage that we earned, that was owed to us. That's what a wage is. It's something that's due to us. Romans 4, 1-5 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That faith is not a work. It's a gift. So we could say it this way. Salvation is a gift from God that comes by faith, which is also a gift from God. All of salvation is about God and what He has done. Your salvation did not come by means of 99% of Christ's work and 1% of your work of faith. It was all a gift. All 100% was a gift from God. A work of God. So then at the end of it all, we would look back on it and say, it was not by works of righteousness which I had done. It was not because of my work of faith that I was saved. But it was according to His mercy. It was a gift of God from beginning to end so that no one of us can boast. We can't boast in our salvation. We can't say that I was the one who pursued Christ because Christ was the one who pursued us. Before I loved Him, He loved me. And before I sought Him, He sought for me. And before I found Him, He found me. Christ is the initiator in our salvation. Next week we'll see that Christ demands that we use His resources properly. But we will never do that unless Christ first starts a work in us by means of granting us spiritual life to us who are spiritually dead. It may have felt like you were the one who started the ball rolling in your pursuit of salvation, but it was actually that God, Christ, long before you did, initiated your salvation in granting you spiritual life and causing you to believe with faith, giving you the gift of faith so that you could come to Him, respond to Him, and receive that great gift of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we were lost in the darkness, stumbling alone, far from the warmth of Your light. But then Jesus found us, and He made us our His own. 
end and gave us a song in the night. And the song is this, that before we loved You, before we loved Christ, He loved us. And before we sought for Him, before Zacchaeus sought for Him, Christ sought for Him and us. And so we gather from that, we learn from that, that Jesus cares for us and that our salvation is not by any works of righteousness which we have done. Even our faith cannot be credited or cannot be applied to our account as a work. No part of our salvation was of us. So we praise You for justifying us, for declaring us to be righteous when we are far from that. We are sinners. And Lord, we boast in nothing more than the fact that that Jesus is our Savior and that we have You as our Father and that we have salvation both now and eternally. And Lord, we want to live our lives in light of that. We don't want to just go from this place and flippantly think that our salvation is of no worth, but it is of greatest value. There's nothing greater in this life than knowing You and to be known by You. And we praise You that You pursued us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Lord, make us alive. Uh, uh, Revive our spirits to know Your love and Your care for us more clearly. And how to respond to You in in genuine and uh, faithful obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.